Today's episode is brought to you by the 50th anniversary of Morning of the Earth, the surfing and counterculture classic made by the man you're about to hear from, the lotus in the sludge, Albie Falzon. Uh, To celebrate the 50th anniversary of Morning of the Earth, a commemorative book is being released. You can pre-order it now on morningoftheearth.com, along with uh, the film itself, which is being re-released in all of its 4K upgraded digital high-def glory, uh, plus an extra 33 minutes of unseen footage that was found um, on its way to a tip, which uh, is a real treat. Uh, The film's going to be... Screened at selected theatres in February and March in the new year. Uh, Book is going to be on sale soon. Pre-order it now. And uh, stay tuned for the unreleased footage. Hamad. Today's episode is also brought to you by Axod Surfboards. That's Alex Cruz Surfboard Designs. The official shaper for the Swellians. Boasting a ton of hi-fi boards and some fun boards all honed in the world-class high-performance breeding ground of the Gold Coast. He's got some of the hottest young talents on his label, including the burly core lord, cone pig, Toby Mossip, and uh, young Hinata Aizawa. So uh, plenty of talent. Mitch Cruz, obviously, the former world tour surfer, is his brother and keen, long-time test pilot. He's got a ton of good boards. Uh, get on there, get yourself a board at axodsurfboards.com, the official shaper of the Swellians. Come on. Hey, uh, well, first of all, I like to say, and I ask people to find me, because I want to be a part of this fucking jump, want to be Kenny's tour. You know, I think they got their, his testicles so far up their mouths that this is bullshit, you know? I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm just thinking about having won the world title and, and hopefully trying to win another one someday. You just drop in and just smack the pull back. Drop down, say bah. Well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did travel some humongous waves. Oh, that's the table thing? Oh, surf looks good, Ivan. Not bad. Ain't that swell with Jed and Vaughn. Oh, those guys are back. <laughs> Get a haircut. Yes, Shredheads, Waxheads, Kooks and Barneys, welcome to a very special edition of Corelords. you ripper. This week we have on the program the Moat Goat. <laughs> Albie Fowles on uh, the founder of Tracks Magazine, the Spiro Cosmic Corelord genius, the Lotus... Born out of red fern sludge, as it were, born. <laughs> Mate, I'm so spewing I miss this chat. Uh, as you know, Smithy, we were staying together last night, uh, sitting around the fire. You went inside, you got yourself a drink of water, you came back, and uh, as you went to grab the cup and, and replenish the uh, H2A levels in your bloodstream, who was there drinking out of the cup? Me dog. Me little chihuahua, Smokey Lopez, mate. And uh, hectic morning, uh, we went for a walk on the beach. She disappeared. Nine hours later, turned up. So, uh, yeah, while you were off talking to uh, the Lotus, uh, I was basically trudging through tick-infested sand dunes. We all know how you feel about the ticks. Mm. And uh, finally, good news, mate, she turned up. So, uh, happy day in the old deadly household in the end. But, yeah, mate, I was was 
absolutely frothing to get out to Yuengai Creek and chat with Albie. Um, he's a guy I uh, have known for a long, long time. Uh, personally, when I was a grom, he, he was uh, surfing around grassy head a lot. So I'd, I'd see him here and there and I was always in awe of him. Like just uh, uh, the happy Buddha, his nickname was uh, back when I was a kid. Because you just see him and he never had a negative word to say about surfing. Not one. Like, mm. you know, you turn up there and be onshore two foot, he'd be like, mate, it's fucking cooking out there. Like, he was just frothing about surfing. And he was early 70s, maybe not even, maybe late 60s. But now he's like nudging towards 80. And man, you got to remember, like, he's from a time before surf industry. He's actually from a time before uh, surfing became a part of Australia's national identity. Mm, mm. Uh, he helped forge that into, you know, who we are as a nation, a sporting nation. Surfing sort of got up to the level it was because of his input, because of his creativity, mm. because of his vision. Uh, and that was on the tail end of basically being involved with people like Bob Evans, uh, who was the founder of Surfing World magazine. He was the first guy to make surf movies in Australia. Uh, that toured the world, he'd drive him up and down the coast, and uh, a real icon of Australian surfing. And he he was from sort of like the very very first seeds in the ground with uh, people like Miriam Sumter, and, and names that probably don't mean much or ring a bell to people now. But I mean, you talk to Nat Young, uh, you talk to you know Midget when he was alive. Like they're the guys who gave those guys the opportunity to become what they became. Mm. So, uh, yeah, this this will be an amazing chat. And how was it? What was it like? Because Albie, as well as being a, an eternal frother, mate, he's a style master. He's like, mm. he looks incredible. His hair's always slicked back. He's got the, he's got the mojo. Uh, how was it turning up at, at, at his farm there? Oh, mate, he is as well-preserved as a piece of dried apricot <laughs> dipped in the finest lysergic acid. He was looking resplendent as always. Surrounded by just this unbelievably well curated collection of plants of various species, including the Bodhi tree, which he's got. I think he's got five versions of the uh, the Bodhi tree around his house, which is from the original Bodhi tree uh, that Buddha gained enlightenment under. Um, so he's got the seeds from that, which uh, you hear the story of that what? in the podcast. But uh, wow. man, his place is just a shrine. It is the epitome of serenity. It's exactly the kind of place you'd expect to find a cosmic, eclectic, truth-seeking core lord <laughs> like Albie Fowles on living in. And it was just a treat, mate. And i got to say, like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know he was from uh, the south side. Uh, Must have struck a chord with you. Yeah, like, no, really did. Uh, I walking think, the same streets, mate, like generations so. apart. Yeah, that's right. It was, and and I think uh, we share a lot of similar values. Uh, I would say the same about Chris Brock, and that this was something we touched on. People from the that part of the world, uh, whether it be Kobe Abbott and Albie Fowlson, uh, you know, Chris Brock, myself. I think uh, there is a, a, a very much a, a kind of an altruistic set of values that run through that community because you go up there surrounded by a fair whack of poverty and, and people who are doing it a lot tougher than you and mm. there just seems to be uh, a sense of responsibility to kind of make things better make uh, you know take people's suffering away uh, and as you'll find out you know that was a huge recurring theme in Albie's life and career and, and work you know he was all about sharing surfing with uh, people of of all descriptions in a in a bid to enrich their lives which i f i think is interesting 
uh, and I think has largely gone missing from surf culture, which has become a lot more about uh, self-satisfaction as opposed to satisfaction of, of the many. But, you know, obviously is changed shape incredibly since Albie was, you know, first involved in the culture. And, um, you know, he stepped away from it uh, for many years, not surfing itself, but the industry because he didn't like uh, where it was headed. It's interesting what you say about the... Uh, you know, he's kind of helped bring surfing to where it is today, but mm. you, you kind of get the sense that the, the the shape that it took there on after was probably not the way he would have liked things to pan out. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, the, the split, the original split, uh, and, and, you know, a, a big part of the feud between Midget and Nat was uh, that sort of 70s uh, fork in the road mm. where Midget mm. wanted to uh, basically keep growing it as this legitimate uh, career option, as, as a, a, a form of life, you know, having a, a meaningful uh, career, you know what I mean? Like where, where you could turn it into an industry and people could live off it. And then Nat and Albie and, and the Morning of the Earth crew basically sort of went, nah, we want to we be more connected to the earth. We want to mm. sort of get out of this sort of... Uh, capitalist uh, sort of money-based experience of life and actually go and and reconnect with the earth so Mm. uh, it's no it's no uh, sort of secret why morning the earth resonated so hard is Mm. it because that was the way a lot of surfers had begun to feel and those trailblazers who were the best surfers in the world that's that's one thing simon anderson always makes a big point of saying about the success of Morning the Earth. It was like it was like the Dane Reynolds thing. It was like the best surfers of their time turned their back on competition, making money, being part of the system to go and reconnect with what really mattered. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, when it's one thing to just go and do that. It's another thing when you are, you know, the, the world champion <laughs> and, and you're the guy doing that. And Albie spearheaded that captured that mm. and that's what made more of the earth you know everlasting really. yeah yeah and it recurred over and over again after that uh you know how many world champs turned their back on competitive surfing and, mm. and went in search of that feeling that albie you know captures so unbelievably well in morning of the earth so i don't know whether he you know shaped that kind of recurring theme of the world's best turning their back on surfing or whether it's just innate to the surfer <laughs> yeah, that at a certain point, point uh, competitive time. accolades, money, material shit just stops to really mean anything or have much value and you go in search of real real experiences and real connection and uh, man, I, I experienced a real connection in this interview. It's a fucking ripper. It was such a treat to sit down with a great man and uh, yeah, uh, I really hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah. Let's get into it. Uh, Albie, thanks for having us here, mate. Um, just, I'm a bit speechless, to be honest, uh, in terms of conducting an interview with you because your life is so incredibly broad and diverse. If I was ever to map out the perfect existence, it would probably look a little bit like yours. Um, you know, <laughs> tapped into surfing at a time when it was in a period of flux um and you you ran with that and had all kinds of crazy adventures through 
untouched regions at a pure innocent time in the culture um you know you defined without saying as much with your films uh, a set of values a lifestyle that you know has reverberated through the generations uh and then you kind of left it all behind and went on a remarkable spiritual and professional journey through a trillion different cultures documenting uh human complexity in all of its uh, incredible forms it's such an incredible life mate um where do we start do we start with the uh the new project that's well, on the horizon maybe 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 we start at the end and work towards the beginning <laughs> sounds good to well, me i mean those, most ends are a beginning for something aren't they i mean you go through your life and you get to the end of whatever it is whether it's a wave or a relationship or a program that you're working on or a piece of music but it's not the end it's just the beginning of something else it's like your life it never really ends you know we we've got this opportunity where we're born we live for a period of time and then we die but we don't die someone told me the other day the world dies you live you know for eternity mm. that's the thing and so your life goes on it's just transformative and that's what happens when you're half awake it's transformative in everything you do you don't lose sight of that you might paint a picture and then you move on to something else but it's not the end it's just the beginning of another picture no. <laughs> so it's so my life has been like an incredible series of pictures like everyone's life but you know i have just had a fantastic opportunity to explore different parts of the planet and in so doing explore different parts of myself but you know not many people get that opportunity and certainly when i was young i never thought that i'd find myself in tibet for example mm. you know when you're born in redfern mm. you spend the first 9 years in redfern you're not thinking about anything outside of that you know no. it's like an, an alien world it doesn't even exist wow you know i didn't even see a tree for the first 9 years of my life and no. you look at my house now it's like thousands of trees around here it's a shrine it's uh it's uh, the closest thing to a holy place uh, you'll ever come across is your place right here. It's incredibly well cultivated. We're hemmed in by a thousand different beautiful, well-kept plants and uh, small little permaculture kind of setups and Buddha heads and prayer flags. Uh, it's the absolute epitome of serenity and, and beauty, mate. It's a, the perfect, uh, the perfect, I don't know, metaphor for your life, this joint. It's incredible. But let's get back to Redfern. Um, you know, what kind of a place was that and how did those early years shape you? Because uh, it was basically a slum in those years. Well, it, yeah, it was. it's still as much the same. If you go back there now, the tenement building that, that I lived in is still there. It's exactly the same. It hasn't changed. My grandmother was fortunate enough to um, earn some money. She worked at the um, gambling schools when she was young and they were illegal right wow. schools and she'd go in there and she'd be preparing meals and she was the host for the the gamblers that had come in at king's cross and of course the premier at the time of new south wales Askin, he'd come in every friday night you know because it was illegal you're not supposed to gamble so he'd just come in under the radar and she'd take care of all these people and as a result uh, she was she earned good money right and with that money, she bought three tenement buildings in Cleveland Street, Redfern. And it became, in a way, a commune because there were three floors in each building. 
So all our relatives lived in those three buildings and we all had an apartment. And my family, that's my mother, father and two sisters lived in one apartment and then our relatives lived in the next apartment. And it was like a commune in a way. And we we're all working class, people poor, didn't have much. But we had the most important ingredient, which was love, like we we're all connected. Right? That was the beautiful thing about it. Like it was in today we understand what a commune is, community living, right? But then at nine years old, what do you know about communes? But it was a natural uh, uh, unfolding through our relationships. So I spent nine years there in a commune and every Sunday we would come together and have a meal. And yeah. the rest of the time we'd just interact and help each other and support each other and so forth. My grandfather, who lived in um, by himself in the apartment downstairs, um, he was retired and full-blood Maltese, right? He stowed away from Malta when he was 14 years old. No way. And they didn't find him until he was halfway across. And then they went, well, we better put you to work. So he stayed on the boat, came to Australia, and he was able to go through the formalities of immigration, and he became a citizen. And he lived there, and he was retired. So he, in a way, became my father because my father was out always working during mm. the day. Mm. And he was a musician. He'd go out at night and play the piano with band and earn you know, extra money for the family. So I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. And he was a swimmer, right? He loved music, growing flowers, and swimming. So he took me one time in a tram down to Coogee. And that was the first time I saw the ocean. Wow. I was nine years old, and it was just incredible. And he would go into the kind of the swimming hole, the bars there, and swim up and down. And um, that was it for me on the ocean. That was my first, um, that was a drop in the ocean. And at the same time, I'd go and spend time in his apartment, and he'd be playing classical music. So I'd, it was the first music I ever heard was the music he played, Mozart and various other classical musicians. And then each um, spring, you had this little block of dirt, which was just vacant for the rest of the year. But in spring, he would go to his cupboard and bring out these bulbs that were in a brown paper bag, and he'd plant these bulbs. And I'd sit on the steps and watch him, so he was planting these bulbs. And he'd look after them, and then three months later, there was like this beautiful garden of dahlias. Wow. So the, the most important things that he gave to me was music, the ocean, and flowers. Right? And love. Through all those elements. And um, we became really, really close. So I spent a lot of time with him. And you look around at my house now, and you know I surf all the time. I'm in the ocean when there's a wave. I've got a garden that he would die for because like, you just, you know, when you think you've come from a conquering jungle and you've got this in front of you. And, you know, my films are basically driven by music as a narrative. So, you know, the most important parts of my early life came from him. And that's where I'm at now. You're never really by yourself. That's the thing. Mm. You know, I mean, the plants kind of like divas and, and um, <laughs> got an animal kingdom around here that, 
is very responsive. You know, I feed a lot of coots in the morning. They wake wake me up at you know five thirty, tapping on the window, and there's a fifty to a hundred of them every wow. morning, religiously. And along with that, there's butcher birds and magpies, and occasionally a king parrot will fly in and land on my shoulder. Right, that's every day. That's how I start my day every single morning. And then I'll wander down here, downstairs, and there'll be some six or so wallabies, females with little joeys, and they feed them. So, you know, you've got a lot to be thankful for in in the world. And you say, you know, you create this amazing, well, I've had an amazing world, but it's almost like there's a kind of blueprint for your life in a way. And you don't realise that, but as you go down the path, you see how all the pieces connect and you don't actually see them at times because you're so involved in the piece and you, of, that, of that moment. But when you go down a little further and look back, you see how they all connect. And then you know, I think about my, often you know, my time at Redfin and my grandfather's you know, love and it was the experiences that we shared. And I can walk around this garden in the morning by myself and it's, you know, there's a presence there. Mm. And it's kind of like an invisible presence, but sometimes that invisible presence is more beautiful and powerful than the real presence that you appears to be there. Hmm. Hmm. It's, um, that's the thing about it, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever read Ben Ockrey. He's my favourite author. He won the Booker Prize many years ago for a book called um, Astonishing the Gods. It's a crossover between the spiritual um, world and the world we live in. He writes between two worlds. Brilliant writer, really beautiful. I mean, you'll read one page of his book. It's like, like a, um, a chapter will be one page. And when you finish the page, you, can, you just stop and you read it again and you don't want to go any further because it's so engrossing and so beautiful. But he captures the spirit world so perfectly. But at the, the, the illusionary reality is that we live in this world. We think that's the only world we, that exists. Mm. The fact is, there's other worlds around us all the oh, time. Mate, anyone who's had a good hit of DMT or uh, psilocybin <laughs> can uh, attest to that, surely, Albie. Yeah, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> and, you know, it's just all you've got to do is learn to breathe properly, basically. Seriously, yeah, mate. You know, Wim Hof is one of the uh, custodians of this program, one of our absolute heroes and icons. Oh, um, totally. Mm. You know, that's, that's what yoga is in a way. It's just understanding the breath and being able to use it in so many different ways. But we don't even consider that. We just say you breathe in and breathe out. But, you know, without that, mm. you know, you don't exist here on this planet. 100%. 100%. Breath is all important. Five and a half seconds in, five and a half seconds out, I think is the the ultimate rhythm through the nose, through mm. in that deep restive breath that actually every ancient culture, they all figured mm. it out on their own that this was the uh, magic kind of time sequence for breathing. The Native American Indians, uh, the Catholics, mm. Christians, uh, the Buddhists, if you say their prayers, uh, it basically slows your breath down to the same magic number and they all figured it out independent of each other. It's in, it's, that's in a book called uh, Breath by James Nestor. But yeah, it is remarkable. Um, back to your story, I'm, I'm so fascinated to know as well, you know, some of the great eclectics we've had on this program, uh, yourself, uh, Chris Brock, you know, they come from, yeah, the south side of Sydney, 
deep and difficult and you know real working class uh, upbringings and it seems to inspire in people a kind of lust for what's beyond the concrete smokestacks what's beyond the the working class grind and you know once you guys got poked your nose through and, and got outside of that that matrix there's no stopping you like um you know how much of that that kind of hardship and or even just being surrounded by that kind of hardship how much did that inspire you to you know just make the most of life really live well I, it's difficult to to know really i mean the parallel i guess or if you take it back to the garden you think about a lotus flower you know it's the most beautiful flower you could ever imagine and perfume is so exotic but it grows out of sludge and mud. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, you know, when you look at inner city of Sydney, it's it's like got pockets, and those pockets are very discriminatory. Mm. But there are low grade, there is next grade, there's a higher grade, then mm. you get up to Palm Beach and you're kind of starting to move out of it a little bit. But, you know, I was born right in the heart of the sludge, Right. And I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but, uh, you know, I, I went to Cleveland Street Boys High School when, when I was there, and I remember I was the favourite in the classroom. Mate, Clevo High is a, is a pretty rough joint. Even, yeah, it was, it, it's always been a rough joint, mate. It's a factory of NRL players and boxers <laughs> and, like, yeah, you want to... South Sydney football team trained just around the corner. Yeah, mate, right? you want to have your wits about you at Clevo High, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I had, uh, you know, I was kind of... And I think it was probably my grandfather that I was kind of tapped into a different energy field because he was really gentle, mm. harmless, mm. loved by everybody, you know, really soft-spoken. And uh, maybe, you know, it was in our DNA or maybe it was just his influence, you know, and guidance and love, you know, that put me in, on a certain path. But I'd go to that school and it must have been resonating because it, we had a, a woman school teacher there and she loved flowers. <laughs> And across the road, there was a florist shop. And once a week, she would order these flowers from the florist shop. And, of course, there's any number of kids in, in the classroom, 30 or 40, and she'd always pick me to go across the road and bring the flowers back. <laughs> wow. And I thought that was pretty cool. You wow. Know? The and lotus I'd, in I'd, the sludge. Mm. Yeah, I was just a little grommet, you know. And I would remember going across Cleveland Street and the, what's the street runs down to the town from Cleveland Anyhow... There was so much traffic and I was like a grommet and the bunch of flowers was huge that I could hardly see over the top of it and I'm trying to negotiate the traffic and get across the road. But those kind of things are really important and influence you enormously. And the second thing that really influenced me when I was at school was that they had National Geographic magazine. I didn't know what National Geographic magazine Mm. was, but it was a picture magazine, right? And I'd go through it. I love looking at the pictures. And I also love big words, you know, Mm. like long words. But uh, I came across this photograph that stopped me in National Geographic. I haven't been back there, but it was of these two llamas in red. And they were on top of a building, a temple. And they were blowing conch shells. And and it was a still photo. And it was like incredible. I stopped and I looked at it and I thought... We're, you know, it was so different from being in Redfern because, you know, I didn't know anything outside of Redfern. Mm. I didn't know what existed. I didn't know that there were oceans or other countries or whatever, cultures and so forth. 
Anyhow, 30 years later, when I went to, uh, when I started to do a series of films on festivals mm. in the Far East, one of the, play, one of the films I made was in, um, it was in uh, Ladakh, right? Yeah. So we're traveling through. Ladakh the, is uh, Tibet. Yeah, it's on the border. It's Tibet like, and Nepal. It's known as Little Tibet because it's mm. bordering Tibet and, in, and, and India. Oh, that's right. It's, it's the escape route for uh, the Tibetans when they're trying to get to India. A lot of the right. Tibetans went, when the Chinese invaded, a lot of them moved into Ladakh mm. and mm. northern India, mm. and Ladakh became known as Little Tibet. Right. Yep. right? So we're filming there, and we end up at this monastery called Tixi Monastery. I mean, it's an incredible country, Tibet, and it's um, Ladakh. And um, I'm filming there, and it just so happens that there was a, a lama died there, and they had a big ceremony. There's no Westerners anywhere, and mm. it's like in the middle of nowhere. And it's just there's no buildings around. It's just this temple and, you know, a few little buildings and a little river there. And I find my way up to the temple, and I walk up to the temple and film it, and then I walk up onto the roof. And I'm at the roof and I'm looking out there and it's the most magnificent view. And then I hear this shuffle. I look around and there's these two llamas walk out. And they walk over and they're dressed in the, in the robes and they've got the conch shell. And they just stand there and I'm there looking at it. And it's like I'm looking at this photograph that I looked at in Redfern 30 years prior to that. And I was going, it blew me out because I was looking at it. It was an exactly replica of what I saw wow. in the National Geographic. And I just went, that's kind of like when things started to knit in on the, on the blueprint. I just, it just made such an impact and impression that I started then looking at other, into other worlds. And I remember in the first line of um, Ben Okri's book, Astonishing the Gods, it said it was better to be invisible, but I didn't realize it at the time. Hmm. And that's how the book opens and it, goes into this journey and I think that's what happens in your life you learn to learn to look and see and I think surfing has a lot to do with that when you ride a wave because you you know as soon as you get on a wave you see things that are different and you hear things that are different to what's going on in the other world you live in on land and it's a kind of form of meditation in a way and because we surf so much it's like a Constantina where all those moments start to become compressed until it becomes one moment. Mm -hmm. It's like you only ever ride one way and it's one moment we live. Our life, whether we're, we live for 30, 60, 100 years, it's really just a moment in time. Mm. And I think that what happens is when you wait to that moment, then that invisible world becomes more apparent to you and you start to travel into that world more and more. So it's kind of like you're in the world, but not of it, right? And that's the beautiful thing about life, because that's how our life is. We're encased in this, you know, this body, but it's not really who we are. Mm. And once you realize that, then the quality of your life and your vision improves enormously mm -hmm. and all the aspects associated with that. And that's why I've had an incredible life, because once you come to that realization, life takes you. You don't control it you let go of your personality life of your form and you allow life to make the decisions for you mm. and it always takes you to the right place you are always in the right spot 
And that's how I've lived my life. And that's why I've been fortunate to go to all these places because I've the door opened. And I think my grandfather had a key and he opened up a base door for me. And from that point, it just kind of started to open up wider and wider as I went down the path. Wow, wow. And in terms of being open enough to to make the right choices when those opportunities are presented to you, um, you know, how do you how do you identify them? Like, is it through meditation? For me, it seems that the only way uh, life leads me to where I should be going is if I'm doing my practice of meditation and breathing, and I'm getting rid of the ego to the point I can actually identify the right opportunity. Like, they are there. But if you're blinded by anger, rage, stress, all these negative uh, kind of emotions, I feel like life kind of can also equally spiral in the other direction and you end up in a world of misery, pain and prison. Probably. Well, that's why I think the temples are so great. Mm. If you can spend time in the temples with Tibetans or whoever and you just stay there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an, an, a, an energy field that's created over generations, if not hundreds and hundreds of years. And that energy sort of, you, you, you absorb that energy just by being there. There is really no choice in your life. You don't have a choice. Mm. Actually, when you realize that you are pure spirit, there's no choice. There's no this or that. It's only when you function in the form as a personality, whether when it's this or that, here or there, up or down, black or white. But when you eliminate that, there's no choice. So everything's perfect the way it is. So why not just allow that perfection, which is life, and you breathe it in constantly, mm. allow that to make the decision for you. That's, that's what meditation is. Pure meditation without meditating. Mm. Mm. Because the practice of meditation takes you to that point. But you get to a point where you don't have to meditate anymore because you are that point. You come to that point of realization where it's not necessary to try and get there because you're already there. Mm. Just focusing on the breath, yeah. staying present, and it, yeah. the life courses through you and the decisions become so obvious they're yeah. almost making themselves. Yeah, we, we are intuitive mm. beings, but we're not, we don't function like that because of our conditioning. Mm. And our Phones, processed foods, fucking polarized news cycles, all the horseshit of capitalism and whatnot. Well, the beautiful thing about a telephone is the next thing after telephone is telepathic. Mm. So it's setting up the whole world into a telepathic group. And a telephone is simply a step towards that. And mm. it's so close because you can have a telephone in your hand and you're everywhere. Mm. You're in the network. So eliminate that. Because that's only the a shadow of the real telephone. Yeah. Television, telephone. And telepathic comes next. And I think once we actually come to that realization uh, as a group, humanity, then this world will be a different world that mm. we're living in. And where everything that happens is just moving us more and more and closer and closer to that. And that's the beauty of life, you know. And, and I think if you come to that realization early, then what happens is that you you can fulfill your purpose of being mm. because it's not about you it's not about me it's about a life <laughs> that comes through us to us and that's the beautiful thing about it and i think that's why i've been you know so fortunate in a way you know sage advice i love it um just to tap back into your surfing life like where did that journey begin obviously uh well, in some ways in Redfern when you went to Coogee, but where did actual surfing, uh, where was that introduced to you? 
When I moved up from Maroubra, I moved from, from Redfin to Maroubra, and then I didn't go, I went to Maroubra Beach, but I never surfed. Mm. I'd go down there occasionally, have a swim. And then a few years later, we moved up to the Central Coast, um, which was a, a holiday resort, and we'd go up there once a year. And we were close to the ocean, and we went there backwards and forwards for one or two years, and then my father decided, I oh, will go and live there. So he sold up, we moved up there and they opened up a corner store and we lived there. And that's when I met somebody, a school teacher, who was a surfer and we were only 100 metres from the ocean and I joined the surf club under his influence. Your because, first mistake? Well, not really because <laughs> what he did is he gave me a surfboard to ride. Yeah. And he showed me how, he, he taught me the currents, he taught me about the ocean mm. and if I hadn't met him and got into that, I wouldn't have a base understanding of how the ocean was because That's right. I was young and, and, and he was, you know, 10 years older and an athlete. Mm. You know, but you good. got out before I started wedging their uh, swimmers up your crack and oh, no, rolling in those giant wooden boats. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I don't even think it was happening then because it was kind of before wedgies, you know, oh, and thongs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Uh, anyhow, that's sort of how it happened, and and um, I started surfing. And he, you know, loaned me his boards, and I'd go out, and and then um, then I asked, then Midget came up one day with the Maroubra crew. Wow! And like he was, you know, so it was about a year after I started. That was about fourteen. I was about fourteen or fifteen, and I just happened to be there when they pulled up, and he was like out there. Like it's mohawk, haircut, flying suit, car with graffiti all over it. <laughs> and I just went far out, you know, like because I was kind of left of field then. I was starting to, you know, find my roots. And um, anyhow, there was a guy with him called Michael Andreas, and he had a board, a balsa board, which was about seven feet long, beautiful design board. And he had an Aboriginal drawn on the front of it. Wow. And you Radical know, for the times, really. Yeah, I was it? watching these guys. They were, doing, they were like amazing, you know, because I hadn't seen any surfing like that, you know, being a surf club and a conservative group of longboarders. And there are these guys riding shorter boards and taking off fin first, no paddle in waves, doing all sorts of things. I was just totally blown away. And then he said um, he was going to sell his board. And I was like four, I couldn't, didn't have a license. And I was four, um, about three kilometres from home. And my friend who had the driver's license was out in the water. And as soon as he said that, that his board was for sale, I just went, oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, I'll, I'll come back. And I ran flat out <laughs> at 14 for four, three or four kilometres back home to my mother and, and father. That, and, and they were, my mother was there, but my father was out working or doing whatever. And I said, oh, da, 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 da. I found someone wants a surfboard, please, please. And we were living at the time in a double garage, like they were poor. So she looks at me and goes, and she walks into the second room of the garage and comes out and gives me the money, which was like food money, right? And I just went, wow. So I bolted flat out back for another three kilometres with money in my hand, thinking, happy he's not gone. Happy he's still there. And he was still there, and I gave him the money. And that became my first surfboard. Unbelievable. It was such a trip. And that was my mother. And I couldn't, I mean, I just could never, ever thank her enough. And when I, when I got back, you know, and I thanked her for it, and I was just thinking, you know, that was so amazing she did that. And she just, she said to me, like, at the time, I can remember, just 
do what you love in life. Just do what you love. And because I love surfing, she was able to provide me the opportunity to follow that path. And that's how, that's how I began surfing full time. Wow. Man, what a unique family you're from to where the mother can have as much influence as that over you, you know, and a lot of those kind of nuclear post-war families, they were That's so right. patriarchal, paternalistic, yeah. you know. And poor, and you know, they're trying to recover from a, a complete, absolute disruption in their lives, mm, losing mm. family members and, mm. you know, The siblings. trauma, the yeah. poverty of war, the depression, uh, right. it's remarkable. And to, to think that, you know, to give you that kind of advice. You know, the thing is, I think that was, I was surrounded by love. Mm. You know, I mean, we might have been poor, you know, and the fact that we, we didn't have the resources, but we were rich in spirit. Mm. You know, I didn't know what spirit was at the time, even though, you know, my grandfather was a Catholic and my father uh, ended up working, you know, going to Catholic school, St. Mary's Cathedral, becoming an altar boy for Cardinal Gilroy. I never really, religion wasn't a part of my life. Mm. My religion became surfing. You know, that's what my religion was. Um, but somehow... I got the richness from the gentleness and the the kindness from the family, and that stayed with me. I never had any form of aggression. I never witnessed any violence. You know, a lot of people in today's world have, you know, traumatic upbringings. Mm. And when you think that they were post-war, the potential there was for, you know, for a lot of um, pain. But I never experienced that in my younger days, mm. and it, lives, it stayed with me all my life. Mm, wow, what incredible advice from your mother and yeah, grandfather. Grandfather. Um, and so how did your surfing journey take shape from there? I understand um, probably a few years after that you, you come across Bob Evans somehow, a guy who's uh, you know, been described as one of the most important people in the history of Australian surfing. Uh, how did you meet Bob and uh, why is he described as such a monolithic figure in the history of Australian surfing? Well, there's two mentors that I had, really, up to that point. I had my grandfather when I was nine. Then I met Jim Lemon, who was a uh, school teacher and, you know, took me into the ocean and started teaching me the ways of the, the ocean and surfing. And he became a mentor for me. He was a, into health foods. Wow. And, um, you know, so he turned me on to things, you know, really good things. Um, and then um, a, a girlfriend of mine... Um, at the time, um, had a, her family had a shop, a, a clothing shop. And Bob happened to be coming through because he was selling women's lingerie. How's that? And he'd be calling in to all the places along the coast. And he had like, you know, he was also uh, like that was his moonlighting job. And he was like, um, he was making films at the time and showing Bud Brown's films in Australia. So he would, this was a great opportunity for him as he was going up the coast to earn money, meet some beautiful women, mm. and well, go for a surf. Right. And what was in these films? It wasn't a bit of the old in, out, in, out, was it, Albie? Oh, uh, no, it was probably or? out, in, out, in, I'd say. But anyhow, <laughs> whatever way it was, it was, it was pretty cool. It was, so he became a mentor. It was kind of more, um, you know, there was a bit of that there, but not a lot. Uh, because what I was primarily interested in at that time wasn't flesh, it was film, mm. right? And uh, that took precedence over everything because I really loved the idea of using a camera to capture the beauty of what I saw because I didn't see it as a selfish thing. 
I saw it as a privilege that I was able to be in this position where I could see things and experience things that other people couldn't. So I wanted to capture it. So I got a camera at an early age and started taking pictures. And it was like that was really, you know, when I wasn't in the water surfing, I was taking pictures. And it just was natural progression and unfolding of my life. Because you wanted to share the beauty of surfing with others in a bid to enrich their lives. Yeah, totally. Wow. Yeah, to, 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 to turn them onto something that they would normally not have or experience, but I did. And it wasn't like, a, uh, it wasn't like an elitist thing or, you know, a selfish thing in it's a way. It's the opposite of elitist. Yeah, yeah it was completely. kind of like because... It's it, altruistic. Yeah, that's what it was more. And at that time, I just, I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if people could just see these things that we were privy to, you know, through surfing, you know, the sunrise, because I was always in the water like most surfers, you know, at sunrise and just the life and the beauty and the colour was captivating so that's why I got a camera no it's really interesting I, I kind of share some similar feelings about surfing I feel like you know especially when you grow up around a lot of downtrodden people um, who are you know have their heads to the grindstone in debt whatever it is I feel like for me there's always been a bit of an altruistic streak in myself in wanting to like you said enrich the lives of others you know bring some colour and beauty to their lives and I I don't know. For me, it was it's definitely bound up in those early experiences of life. Um, and do you think that's kind of the same for you? You, you wanted to bring a bit of colour to, to what you knew to be, you know, often difficult and uh, lives of drudgery in other parts well, of the world. I think I think it's you, you come to a certain realization, and it's almost like you understand you understand your purpose early in life. Mm. You don't understand what it means. You know, you're not kind of looking for it, but you kind of realise there's something that you're meant to do or be part of. And, you know, at 14 or 15 or 16, not many people realise that. I mean, Mozart realised it when he was four. But, you know, I just kind of had this feeling that um, I wanted to uh, use film to uh, as a way to uh, enlighten and, and uplift people's lives. Remarkable. Right? And that's how I met Bob. And he was there doing lingerie, and she invited him around. She said, come around to our house for dinner. And then she contacted me and said, we have a man here who's interesting, a surfer. You want to come around and join us? So I came around, and after dinner, he just said, oh, would you like to see a film? And he went out to his car and got a 16mm projector and brought it in, <laughs> set it up in the lounge room, put the screen up, and we watched one of Bud Brown's films. Wow. And that was the first surfing film that I'd seen. And it just blew me away. Wow. I mean, it was like so amazing to see that because at the time, I'm not sure if I had an 8mm camera, but I was definitely dabbling in, in, in movies. You know, like I like the idea of cameras, whether they're movies or stills. And uh, that was a turning point for me. And I stayed in touch with Bob after that and started photographing my friend surfing and I'd send him pictures and one thing led to another and in a year or so I was working with him in, his, in Sydney. For, and uh, surfing world, right? Is yeah. that where you got your start yeah. originally? That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I guess you mentioned your roles for surfing world. I mean, who were the, some of the surfers of the time? What was the kind of surfing of the time um, and, and even the lifestyle that you were depicting in those years? Well, it's a long way from the central coast because, you know, Sydney was a nucleus mm. for surfing. And, you know, and you think of the areas in North Stain and um, Narrabeen and Wild Beach and Avalon, you know, they all had 
this community of surfers and they were all proficient you know so i went from sort of ground level up to you know four runs up the ladder and to be able to be part of and witness this incredible ability on a broader scale was amazing um because i was on the front row you know i i I worked for bob and i was in sydney and i was witness to this every day and i was out there photographing it and helping me on the magazine and it became my life totally and uh, that's just one thing rolled on to the next. And then one time, Bob, because he'd go to Hawaii every year. It was only the two of us working in the magazine. He'd go to Hawaii every year for the winter. And um, it just so happened that he couldn't go this year. And he said, Do you, would you go? And I went, are you kidding? <laughs> so in 24 hours, he gave me a crash course in filmmaking in 16mm cameras. He said, now this is how you come, this is how you load the, the camera, etc." And he had two tickets, right? He had a ticket to, for himself, and he was taking David Trelaw over with him. Batty Trelaw. Batty was going with him, and then he couldn't go. And in 36 hours, we were on a plane. Batty and I are going to Hawaii, and we just went. Are you fucking kidding? Me? <laughs> <laughs> and then, like we're on this plane, and you like couldn't get the grin off our faces on the entire journey. Like we were just like high as a kite. And we got off. I remember the moment the door opened on tarmac in Hawaii and there was this waft of tropical breeze and perfume and it was like the clouds and we just but that was it like that was my dream you know I I always wanted to once I saw Bud Brown's film I just wanted to go to Hawaii and film it and be part of it and look at those waves and just it was like tropical splendor you know what I mean we we, I'm born in Redfern which is grey concrete jungle and in a short period of time I step off in Hawaii into this beautiful, incredible island with colour and trade winds and beautiful water, girls putting lays around your neck when you get off the plane and fuck, you know, that was it. Wow. That, that for me and Batty was a pivoting moment in our lives. What was Batty's uh, story and, and what kind of a travel partner was, was he to have on that opening foray? Oh, fantastic. Never stopped laughing. I remember one time we went into, we were on saying out that, um, well, actually we were saying at Makaha, but we spent a lot of time in the North Shore, but one time we went into, into town, we drove into Waikiki, oh, we'll go out for a meal or something like that. So we go into town and um, we get out of the car and Batty's, I drive and Batty's the passenger and he opens the door, but it was the wrong moment to open the door and a, this gigantic Hawaiian guy walked straight into the door. And like it kind of was a split second. He opened mm. the door without looking, and the guy was there. And he walked into it, and he just went, "Howley, you know." Oh, it's the original busting down the door, isn't it? it was, really, it was like busting down that, and it was <laughs> like busting down the car door. He just tried. He just tried to drag uh, David out of the car, and I got out of the car, and David came across to the passenger, the driver's side, and jumped out of the car, <laughs> and I'm sort of on one side of the car, and this guy comes around the other side, and I stand back because he's not interested in me and it's so funny because David was really agile and small and you know this guy's like huge you know and he's slower and he's chasing him around the car in the middle of Waikiki trying to get him and punch his head in you know we were just like a crack anyhow we jumped in the car and got away from that that was just one of the many many hilarious experiences and we just after we got in the car and he'd settled down he realized he wasn't going to be beaten to death 
we just laughed ourselves stupid. <laughs> and we had, I mean, that was a journey with David, even when I was going up the coast with him, him and Bat, he and Stephen, you know, it was always like top level fun. Yeah. You know, we never, ever stopped laughing when the whole journey, you know, over there, when I made Morning of the Earth, it was the same thing. Those two were just like the best traveling companions. We had the best time. Unbelievable. And talk us through the, the culture and the scene that you were watching unfold over there in Hawaii, the surf scene. Uh, yeah, you know, what was going on? What was the, uh, who were the characters? Uh, what were, what was going what, well, we, what were they consuming? <laughs> what were they consuming? Well, it was kind of like we were on the peripheral. We we stayed at Makaha, right? We stayed with Ernie Thompson and, and Sean Tom and Sean Thompson's fa father, uh, Evelyn and Ernie, and Sean was there. He was a grommet. Wow! So we became a nice little triangle of energy because we'd surf at Makaha, all right, which is like home, traditional home for Hawaiian surfing, and that's where they parked because Ernie and Evelyn were, you know, laying the red carpet down for their son to enter into this, you know, arena, mm. which he did and became, you know, a world champion. But he was like a skinny little runt when we were there. He was only a little kid. I met him, you know, in Africa. And um, uh, so we spent a lot of time there in the traditional families and got to know, you know, the real son and various other people. Wow. And we're kind of accepted in a way because we're, harmless and little grommets and we weren't really there to compete with anybody we we're just enjoying the presence of being in you know the mecca for surfing and we were just this was our first trip to hawaii so they opened up and uh that's where we stayed mainly and i never got into the competitive uh, north shore uh arena that much i went over there a few times um and fortunately we were there when the big surf came but i never really got into the surfing um crew I just well, hung out, really. And there were a few Australians there. Midget came, and we went over after the surf, Midget and Dave and myself, to Honolulu Bay. And I wish I had the footage. It was like solid 8 to 10 feet. Wow. And I was filming full frame of both of them at their peak. I mean, Midget was like absolutely at his peak in surfing, and so was David, and they were just surfing these waves. And I filmed the entire thing. It was phenomenal. And for some reason or other, the film was was misplaced, like a lot of Bob's material, mm. and we lost it, um, and it never turned up. But um, but that was a great experience, and it was kind of like I was more into a th the family experience, you know. Hmm. And um, of course, Sean went on from there and became, you know, a North Shore, you know, master mm. of surfing, and ended all the competitions and so forth. And I don't think I went. Um, did I go back? Yeah, I went back one other time. That's the only uh, twice. I never went back. Uh, I went back to film sex, uh, sequences for Morning of the Earth, uh, but I never went back to Hawaii after that. Wow, that's remarkable in itself. Um, I, I mean, got everything I needed to get in that one trip. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of a pretty steady decline from the, the 70s on, it seemed. Uh, well, the kind of, the, of the you know, commercial surfing and, mm. and Californians were there, and it just sort of... It kind of it was it stepped over the line and moved into a different sort of um, domain, you know. Like mm. it was a whole different um, ball game, I think. After that, I mean, we still got a taste of traditional Hawaiian surfing, and Hawaiians got the tail end of that, you know, before the Californians moved in and it became that other, you know, thing that happened. How would you describe that traditional Hawaiian surfing and and, and some of the characters? What, what was their kind of mana or or vibe? 
Uh, it was like, um, I guess it was just like a trade wind, you know, like it's constant, beautiful, gentle, and totally in harmony with life. And, you know, they were like, they weren't, um, there was no, there wasn't a competitive aspect, which I find is really remarkable because in our contemporary Western society, it's based on competition from day one. When you went to school, you're always competing with somebody. But that wasn't there. And I love being in an environment where there is that uh, harmonization and interaction on that level. And the culture was alive and the richness was there. And the Hawaiians expressed that beautifully and we were absorbed into it. And, I, and, and that's what was remained. And I thought, in a way, that stayed with us, you know, because that was my upbringing. So when I had a taste of that in Hawaii, it was like I felt really comfortable and at home. Um, you know, those things changed afterwards in, when competition read its ugly head mm. in surfing and commercial, the commercialization of it um, took over. I just steered clear after that, you know, and, and I just didn't want to be part of that. It wasn't part of my makeup. I wasn't, uh, I just didn't, it's something I didn't subscribe to. I just, you know, it's, it's okay. Those things happen, mm. but it wasn't for me. Mm. And what about the Banzai? I mean, far out. It must have been so radical to see people, uh, you know, surfing thick single fins in waves of consequence at that You know, age. I went down the pipeline when I was doing Morning of the Earth. I didn't actually see it that much when I went with Bob. Uh, I didn't film the North Shore that much, and I can't recall uh, any, any experience with pipeline. I remember Waimea Bay closing out, and it was like, you know, giant, and Waimea Bay was, and um, um, Makaha was phenomenal. Um, but when I went back the second time to do Morning of the Earth, I got up one morning, I was staying on the A-frame of Rocky Point, and I went down to, to really early to Pipeline. It was, must have, I don't know if I came up overnight or whatever, but it was like eight to 10 feet. And I was down there really early, and there wasn't a person in the water, and there wasn't a person on the beach. And I set up my camera, and I was filming, I had a kind of 45 degree angle on it, so I was kind of looking into it a little bit, and I had a 400mm lens on, and I remember <laughs> looking into the barrel of these waves, and I was pretty fit at the time, and was, you know, surfing, and I thought, you know what? I'm never gonna surf that wave. I just, I just looked at it. I couldn't believe that a wave of that intensity was breaking so close to the shore, for start, and on shallow reef, and I just thought, uh-uh, that's not for me. It's like going to Chopu, and you're a good surfer, but you're not a great surfer, and it's 12 feet, 15 feet, and you're going, Nah, I'm not going out there. <laughs> and that's how it was. But what was amazing that Jeff Devine, who spent a lot of winters there filming, photographing, he happened to get up early in the morning as well. And he went by in the morning and saw me on the beach, kneeling down behind the tripod as if I'm praying to the surf, right? Filming, and he took a photo. And 20 years later, he sent it to me. And you know what? You will never, ever go to Pipeline and not see that it's always, the beach is always full and there's a million people in the water. You'll never see that scene again. That's just, so he just sent it out of the blue and said, oh, I came across this in my files. I thought you might like it. It was such a classic picture. Wow. What about the greatest surfing you ever saw go down there? Oh, some big names. Oh, I think that was watching um, Barry Kayanapuni. At sunset, that was pretty far out. Seeing Terry surf over there, Rocky Point, 
Australian, like he had a, diff, a completely different approach. He was more dynamic in his surfing. I thought that was really great. I mean, the, the Californians were great there in the way they surfed and the North Shore. But Terry just kind of had a different mindset, you know, and he was peaking at the time. You know, so it was really great to see him surf those waves. And, and the only other... Th- the experience that I had really that was memorable was being at Makaha when it closed out. It takes like, you know, a hundred foot away for it to close out at Makaha <laughs> and watching, you know, those early um, Californians and some of the Hawaiians and the big name, uh, the surfers, big name surfers. Greg Knoll, is that still Yeah, he- Greg Knoll was there. Uh, and who else was there at the time? Mike Diffendeffer. Uh, there were kind of people that have, um, the Australian Keith Paul was out there he, uh, surfing it. Uh, who else was there from Australia? I can't remember who else. But there was about bit by bit they all filled it in. But it was pretty impressive to be there and watch that because one of the photographs that really impressed me when I was 15 was a photograph taken by I think Clarence Mackey uh, of Makaha, and it's the most perfect wave. I'll show you shortly. I've got it up to here. I found it. It's an original photo, would you mm. believe? And there's three guys dropping down this wave, and it's just so clean and smooth, and it's about 15 feet. And it's got this sort of sloping face on it. It's not like a top-to-bottom wave. It just And they're just like in the top going down on these, you know, old boards. But it's like the most magic photo. And that, to me, was a real draw card for going to Hawaii. Remarkable. Uh, and, and you come back from Hawaii, and not long after that, you found Tracks Magazine, the Surfer's Bible, and <laughs> just <laughs> one more of the, popular than the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the uh, absolute staples of counterculture and surf culture. It's shaped surfing in this country as, as much as anything. Yeah. Um, talk to us about the early days of Tracks Magazine. Yeah, well, that was sort of that just kind of fell out of the sky the way that eventuated because David Elphick was working at a magazine called Go Set, which was a rock and roll magazine. He was a journalist. Mm. And it was being published out of Melbourne. And I was with Bob working in the city, not far from Cleveland Street, actually in an office there up at Blind Alley. And John Whitsig was working on a magazine just around the corner. So we had two surfing magazines in the city publishing it from the inner city. That was pretty bizarre. And somehow we just hooked up because John lived at Whale Beach, I lived at Whale Beach. And I think at the time, David was at Whale Beach as well. We all had, you know, we moved up there because it was kind of like a, an artistic community that lived there, musicians and artists and photographers and so on. And just to give people an idea of uh, where that is, uh, you know, heaps of our listeners are overseas. It, it would have been pretty pretty rural almost an outpost in in those days was it yeah it was like that. all those houses or say 70 percent of them were you know from the rich and famous in sydney and they were like oh, they holiday were. houses oh, okay so yep. they were empty for most of the year yeah so you know all the artists would come out there and be able to rent them you mm. know on a semi-permanent basis mm. for next to nothing so there was a real influx of drug dealers and you know beautiful models and photographers and artists and musicians all living out there so it was like a a really creative community, hmm. and um, of course we had to, we happened to have um, houses there, and we end up um, having a tracks office there, and you could look out the window and see um, the wedge, which was a long way from where Surfing World and Surf Magazine were being published and printed in Sydney. When you look out the window, it's a brick wall, hmm. and that's how it came together. The three of us just sort of came together. We're all working in separate areas, and we just went. You know, let's 
He was working for a newspaper. And um, Go Set was a newspaper format. And that's what happened. We moved away from the glossies that were printed in Hong Kong, took th three months to turn around. And we moved into uh, a newspaper, which took you know a week or two weeks to turn around and got more involved in issues. Mm. Mm. Which was great, and it was just perfect timing because you know what was where everyone was at at the time. Yeah. So, what was the kind of underpinning editorial direction of Tracks in those days? What was your what was your philosophy or goal? You know, it it wasn't just a surfing magazine. It was far from that. It, a counterculture. Counterculture. Uh, totally, totally. You know, we all had different ideas of, of of being there, but basically, at the end of the day, we're able to look at our, our, away from our personal desires and look at the the larger picture and the opportunity that presented because there was a real movement. You know, it was like post-Vietnam and there was a mm. lot of good music around and people wanted a new direction. So there was a receptivity for change. Mm. And we just happened to be part of that and recognised it. And tracks became a vehicle for all those aspects, political, economic, food, music, um, surfing, drugs. You know, we were the first magazine that ever sold bongs in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> That oh, was pretty mate. far out. Wow. That's, uh, I didn't see that in your kind of <laughs> My career biography. Yeah. <laughs> Should be there, though. Wow, that's incredible. What an, what an honour. Oh, um, well, if you've got Captain Good Vibes, you've got to be able to sell bongs. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Tony but, Edwards but, dripping you know, that was pretty radical. Mm, oh, man. I, well, reckon, I mean, yeah. I remember one time Channel 9 coming out with a film crew and you know, pulling us down the beach and wanting to do an interview about a magazine. The old a current affair kind of stitch-up yeah, job. Yeah, it was a current affair oh. job. And they really, underneath it all, they'd sussed out that we were selling bongs. But they, that, that wasn't the reason. They just thought, oh, well, it was the reason, but it was kind of like we want to find out about it. And then it got on to, it got on to the selling of uh, smoking supplements. And mm. well, How do you feel about that? That's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. Why not? People can go down there and buy alcohol. Yeah, you know, no problems. And what's—I don't know anyone that's going to be harmed by it. So you know, why not? That's what people want. Give it to them. Mm. That's what we did, and they <laughs> fucking went to wear on Channel Nine. That was really, really great. Oh, you know? that's like, good. It's just—we just said it as it, you know, told us as it was. Yeah. No. So you should, mate. It's yeah. the dead truth, uh, and you know. They can't understand it through their capitalist, uh, yeah. colonialist, horseshit fucking lens, but that's uh, that's their loss, and they're probably all having a toke when they knock off from the. Uh, well, how come the you know they can on? sense they they can allow whaling to go on, and they can fuck up the the rutile and the beaches by mm. getting all the rutile mines out, but you can't smoke a bong. Mm. Forget it. You're kidding, aren't you? Mm. And you've been up in Vietnam under a lie, killing people, under a war, and putting us on a situation where our, our, our young people are dying for what? You, you know, get real. Mm. Yeah, we'll sell bongs. No mm. problem at all. Mm. Especially mm. to the politicians. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give them away free to them. <laughs> <laughs> they can have a bong every morning if they want. <laughs> bong hawk. Oh, it was like, it? It, it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty free-spirited. Cool, man. And it was fun. You know, that was the thing. We just, you know, we just had a lot of laughs and, you know, it was a really good time. And what are the stories... Uh, uh, the feature articles, the issues that you're most proud of in uh, the time running tracks that you covered. I mean, I can remember doing a bit of work experience at the tracks office and reading, uh, you know, they kind of have this leather bound book uh, with all the old archive stories in it. And I blew the dust off Phil Jarrett's uh, kind of 
I guess it was the follow-up to busting down the door um, when he was in Hawaii. And I remember meeting up with, uh, I think it was Rabbit and PT and Kanga. They were holed up in some uh, booth at a restaurant, maybe at Turtle Bay or yeah, somewhere, you know, in Hawaii. trench coats <laughs> and, uh, with a tennis racket under his trench coat, pretending it was a gun. Yeah, Rabbit was trying to find an exit, but all the exits were blocked. <laughs> he was trying to get the hell out of there because he knew his number was up and he was going to get really bounced. But... You know, they were a bit cheeky. Mm. I mean, you know, there was nothing subtle about their their movements on the North Shore. Mm. And I think that's asking for trouble. Mm. I mean, you know, like you don't wave a red flag in front of a bull. Mm. And I, I just think it's disrespectful. You know, I mean, uh, politeness is really important wherever you are in in your life. And I think if you're, if you're treading on sacred ground from as an outsider then treat it as a sacred gown and have respect. Mm. And, you know, the Hawaiians went, well, you're welcome here, but don't fuck with us. Mm. You know, don't mess around with us because, you know, that's not on. We've been messed with by missionaries for, you know, 150 years. Mm. We're not going to take that anymore. And they were the brunt of it because they went in there with the Australian flag uh, uh, flying and decided, you know, they're going to rule the roost. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Well, Forget it. Yeah. And those kind of things. I mean, I wasn't... I was just on the peripheral, but being being involved in tracks, John Whitting took more of a proactive political because he was a journalist. You know, I was the, 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 the visionary in a way um, and the graphic designer, and my real focus was making the film. Mm. And David wanted independence. The film um, Morning of the Earth? Because this yeah, is all happening about the same time, right? It, yeah, it was the birth of Morning of the Earth. Well, they two, both of them came together at the same time and it just so happened that um, we published the newspaper about the same time that I was moving more into wanting to uh, move forward with the filmmaking mm. of Morning of the Earth. So that to me was the golden opportunity because it gave me freedom um, uh, to be part of uh, a contemporary newspaper and a platform for Morning of the Earth and I recognised that straight away so we utilised both of those aspects I did uh, in, the, in the filming I mean I worked my butt off because I you know, was a graphic designer and then we'd, we'd have a downtime of say 10 days a month and in between if it really got good I'd you know jump in the car and off we'd go but, but during that 10 days I'd be out filming up the coast and filming and then back for the deadline and putting the magazine together uh, and that's how it worked. And John was really happy because he wanted, you know, he, he was at university and was independent and wanted to, you know, basically live out in his place at Whale Beach and have his own publication. And David, it was a, a, a it was a doorway for him to escape Melbourne and the music scene, which he'd been part of for, you know, 10 years or so before that. So we all had these sort of, we'd all come together as a triangle with with at the right time to start our own publication. And independently, we probably wouldn't have done it. But the fact that the three of us were thinking the same thing around the same time, we all got together. We didn't have five cents between us. Mm. So we started a newspaper and we didn't have enough money to print it. You know, but somehow, with a minute to 12, someone came to the party and gave us the printing money, the money to print it. But we'd put all the work and energy into it you know, just out of our own resources, which was zilch. I mean, I didn't have enough money at the time, to, you know, to buy film to mm. go to, to, to do Morning of the Earth. And then he came, I can't think of his name, I keep trying to think of his name, it escapes me. It was a friend of John's, and he came up and he put the 3000 or $4,000 or whatever it was to print it down on the table, 
and we wow. pruned it. It's a lot of money in those days. Yeah, it was a, it was a major cost. Fuck. And we put it together for Zilch, and he paid for the printing, and then it went out, and we got. Uh, we were distributed by um, Packers Organisation because they printed the magazine, mm. so they did a deal to distribute it. And when it went out, it sold out on the first issue. Wow. Uh, we never looked back. That was oh. it. Paid the guy back the money, and that was it. We had the magazine just kept coming out, and it, it covered its costs and made a small profit every month. How old were you at this point? 28. Mate, that I must... think I'm not sure around about, about that yeah. age. Yeah. Okay, that must have been one of the most exhilarating times of your life. I don't think there's been a moment with which hasn't. Been <laughs> <laughs> it's so I, true, man. But I think about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just everything's just like, you know, like I've made since Morning of Earth, I've made probably 40 films. Yep. And I've been to the most incredible places that you, you know, most people wouldn't get to in five lifetimes. Mm. And every one of them has been great, you know, culturally rich and great experience for me and great opportunity to share them with the world that people never get to those places. Africa, Jamaica, Tibet, India. Um, Where, I mean... I went to Tahiti three times. I didn't even know Chopu was over there. (laughs) I went to the Canary Islands, didn't even know there was a wave there. I was in Morocco for two months making festivals of the Rose and all those point breaks down there, and I never saw the coast once. And I would have been surfing them by myself. Wow. You know, I just was kind of focused on what I was into at the time, which was recording the culture. And just across the hill, there's these amazing breaks of <laughs> waves running for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of metres down there and no one on them. Mm. That's like going to the Bali for the first time and looking down and seeing Padang and there's no one there. Yeah, talk us through that adventure, oh, man. Fuck, it's iconic. It's I, just, uh, I mean, that was like mind-boggling to think. There was so much surf there that we didn't have to move from all the way to because it was more than we can handle right there. And I'm standing on the turn of the corner where you can look down there, down the down the, down the bucket and see all those breaks. And um, I go, I look down there. I, I, look, I look down there and I can see Padang. I see all these waves going in there. And then I look out and there's a set coming in, like, you know, I'm back on the Uluwatu. And because we had limited time and it was all we could do to get from, you know, Kuta out to Uluwatu, it was a bit of an exercise. Mm. And that I never went down to Badang. I don't have regrets in my life, but I always saw them inquisitive. I go, just imagine if you'd walk down to Padang and there's no villages there, there's no people, and you paddle out and surf that by yourself. That would just be too good. Wow. <laughs> That's what I think about how it would have been, you know, if we had a bit more time and got into it because, you know, I just love that wave so much, but I never really got into it because there were people there. But I did get some good waves in Bali. Unreal. Um, and it was Steve Cooney and uh, TF, was it? Terry Fitz with the the guys on that trip? No, it was um, Steve. I think Terry went over with somebody. He didn't come with me. We went over with um, Rusty Miller. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because he was like, you know, he'd ridden Wymere Bay at 25, 30 feet. So he was kind of like, he was the old man of the sea at the time because Stephen was 14 when we went to Bali. (laughs) So David thought it would be a really good marriage to have someone that was that experienced in Rusty that was capable and having Stephen, who's this young grommet who has had great potential, and take the two of them together into this area that we knew there were waves, but we had no idea what they were like. 
and as it turned out, it was the perfect combination. Do you remember that morning? I mean, uh, it's one of the most iconic sequences in the history of surf films, young Steve and Rusty making their way out to, I guess, is it, uh, it's kind of breaking, is it outside corner or it's, it's close there was to a, it? We had a few no sessions there and, and most, there was one session where it was breaking on the outside corner, but most of it was just kind of up the, off the left-hand side of the, uh, of the cave and at lower tide it was on the inside, running run across the inside reef. Um, and, uh, and where it was a bit smaller, but it was pretty pretty amazing because I'd gone out there, and when it was flat, we were staying at Cuda. We didn't even know there was where the surf was, mm. and I could see the headline. So I'd, I went out there one day when it was flat, and there was a perfect little two foot wave running around the point because I walked out. I, I just you know, and then I saw it and I went, "Wow, that looks like it'll be good." How did that feel? Like just stumbling across uh, a joint like that? Yeah, it was no one there. No one there. There was just a few people working in the gardens. There was no villages. They were in kind of another, you know, half a kilometre inland. And it was kind of like that. But there were tracks there because they were fields where they had cattle and things. But there was no one. It was just we went to the temple and then we walked from the temple in along the edge of the cliff. And um, then when we got close to the, the headland, I could see these waves wrapping around. It wasn't, it was so flat, the water was like crystal. It was... You could see the reef, and it wasn't breaking up in front of the temples or Lulus, but it was wrapping on the corner. Mm. It was a little two-foot wave just coming around the corner. I just went, gee, that's a nice little wave, because I didn't had no idea what it was like. Mm. And then the surf came up two days or three days later, and and we all just said, rendezvous and said, oh, let's go out there. So we packed up and went out there, and it was eight feet. <laughs> What was the what was the chat between Rusty and Steve at that point? Steve oh, well, must have been shitting bricks. Well, I was looking at some of the outtakes the other day, and I hadn't seen that for ages. I hadn't, you know, since we shot and just emerged. And I was looking at it, and there's a there's a scene where I've been filming, and there's like everyone's walking out. There's there's Rusty and uh, Paul Hutchinson and David Elphick, and a hundred meters in front of him is Stephen Cooney, <laughs> and he's like leading the charge. Like you can see, he's wanting to get out there. But he has no idea what it's like either because he hadn't been there before. But, you know, he knew the surf had come up and he was foaming. Uh, he, so it's really interesting to look at that image. It tells, it tells such a story. Um, and then we found our way down into the cave. We didn't know that. When I went out there, I didn't know there was a cave there because it was just a cliff. Mm. But in the walk out, a couple of the villagers had hooked onto us because they were curious. Mm. And they walked out there with us, and when we got there, they were beckoning us to, to, to come follow them, and they led us down the ladder into the cave, and that was our way out. It was so incredible. Wow. Really beautiful. Yeah, I look around your place, and there's Buddha heads everywhere. Uh, I mean, I'm interested to know what, uh, what sort of an imprint Bali left on you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I had no desire to go to the east. You know, even when we had tracks, Dave would go every year in the few years we were there. Um, and I hadn't gone, I've traveled a little bit, but I hadn't gone anywhere into the eastern countries. And David every year would take a month and he'd go up to Nepal. And he'd travel through Nepal and hang out on the hippie trails up there. And hmm. he'd come back. And it kind of was like, you know, he wasn't really into surfing. He was a journalist and into music and and uh, 
Anyhow, I just, I kind of was, my focus was like Hawaii. And he met uh, Russell Hughes. He knew Russell, but he met up with him after Russell had been to Afghanistan for whatever reason. Mm. <laughs> and uh, a few kilos of Yeah, he probably did. You know, I was doing a bit of shoveling. And uh, <laughs> anyhow, he, um, he came back via Bali. And that was really interesting. It was a stop off on his way back to Australia. And he ca- when he came back to Australia, he hooked up with David at some point and said, there's surf in Bali, you know, you ought to go to Bali. And that's how we got to Bali. David had a few tickets and he was, because he was focused on the East, um, he was wanted to go there and bring that culture and, uh, into the film. And for me, it was like, what do you want to go there for? You know, I don't want to go up there. I had no, no desire whatsoever to go to Asia. And anyhow, we went, and that was a changing and turning point in my life when I went to Bali. If you're going to be introduced to Eastern cultures, Bali is a really good entrance. Mm. It's Hindu, you know, in a, in, 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 a, in a Muslim country, and it's beautiful, it's vital, it's creative, it's rich, it's fertile, the people are incredible. You know, someone told me once that the world, if the world collapsed because of humanity in some way, but the Balinese and the Tibetans remained, then we'd have a future. Mm. And for me, I just, I mean, I could, you know, I could have lived there. And I went back every year for the next 20 years to, mm. to Bali and sometimes stayed from two months up to six months. Wow. And it's, you know, because I was really interested in filmmaking, I didn't want the lifestyle of living there. I wanted to be able to make films, so I'd come back. I'd go out and go out and do my filmmaking and whatever, but I just had the calling to go back there, and that's when I really got it. I didn't surf the first time I was there. Mm. I filmed. So I never got in, into any of those waves that Stephen and Rusty got into, but I made up for it the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And you, you directed me to a book on the way in here called Bali High. It's yeah. about the kind of... Uh, that surfing countercultural hippie trail. Uh, Bali was one center point. Mm. Goa in India was the other. That's right. Uh, what was the? I mean, and the, both those places are iconic for for different reasons and and some similar reasons. I mean, they've both been developed and, and changed shape uh, on a on the surface to a large degree. But mm. I think the core of both places is still relatively intact. What was you know what was the through line between Goa and Bali in those days? And um, you know how are surfers? Uh, why were surfers going to these two places and how are they also funding these travels, mate? Well, I went to them. I went there for a different reason. I mean, the surfing was part of it. You know, really kind of, like it was a 50-50 deal because I loved the idea that you just walk down from the Lozman through a rice field and paddle out mm. and it wasn't like tourist town. But I also loved the, the, the confluence of all these different people from... South America, from Italy, um, America, Brazil, and they'd all, a certain type of people, you know, they were traders. They'd come in and buy material or they'd, get, they'd look for jewelry or stones and things, and they were free-spirited. And I loved being in that family. It was like a, I lived there for six months in this place up near uh, um, Legian, and it was, I was there with families like that. Some of them had kids, some of them, and it was like I was living in a commune. Right now, I really love that interaction with people, especially when there's the harmony there. 
as a result of the love. And it's selfless and it's beautiful. And that was a magic attraction for me. And at the same time, he had this exquisite Balinese culture that was active. And so he had the best of both worlds. He had the Western influence there that were, they were spiritually orientated, very creative, harmonious in their relationships with people, family. And then you had the Balinese culture that were just so creative and artistic. So I was able to, you know, mix all those things together. And that to me was the, like the most perfect place to live. And then I'd just walk down across the rice fields and paddle out at sunset and ride these most perfect waves with half a dozen people in the water. Wow. I mean, why wouldn't you want to live there? Mm. And so I went backwards and forwards. And then, you know, 10 years later, um, you know, when the Australian tourists um, industry kicked in and Bali started to kick in it gradually changed but I I got the best of it and that book Bali High that you looked at it was if you look at it and you look at those photos every shot in that photo in that book is radiant mm. every every person is a whole mixture of people but every one of them every photo is radiant you will not see a book with so much beauty and radiance from a group of people as that book and that was an expression of the time, and that's the reason I'd stay there. Mate, oh. <laughs> so, Life goes on. Yeah, it does. You it know, does. and you make it too. I mean, I think, you you know, once you plant a seed inside yourself, or it's planted for you, either way, then and you just water it and you take care of it, then all those opportunities are forever there mm. for mm. you. And that's the thing that's brought me back full circle with the film, in a way, because it, it's an expression of that in some f form. And today more than ever, because there's twice as many humans on the planet uh, now as when we made that film. And I think it really, you know, there's, a, there's enough out there to shift consciousness, but it's really needed because of the, the demands placed on the planet. You know, Morning of the Earth is a great film in a way because it's, it's, it's about a journey, but it's a dream. But it's more than a dream. It's about... It's about the earth, the planet. And, you know, we've been given the opportunity to, to live on this place. And I, I think it's as custodians, we have to care for it. Mm. And that's what's important about the release of the film. It's only a small drop, but it's a really important drop. And, you know, I'm supportive of that for that reason because, you know, most people out there are pretty messed up mm. and, uh, you know, mixed up. You know, they're confused. Mm. You know, things are happening that are beyond their control. Yeah, they've been placed in systems that yeah. don't have their best interests at heart. No, it's based on fear. Mm. And, you know, my whole life has been based on the opposite. Mm. You know, there's no choice between fear and love. There's only love mm. in your life. That's what we are. We're the embodiment of it. And I think we have to express that in whatever way we can. And I chose, when I was 15, film to do that. And that was the vehicle that allowed me the opportunity to be able to live my life the way I do, mix with cultures that have enhanced my life, discover Buddhism, which has been fantastic, and surf and mm. be healthy, you know, and contribute all that back. And that's what we're doing. Mm. And you stepped away from surfing uh, after Morning of the Earth, and I, I guess you, you kept on with tracks for a while, but why did you step away from surfing, um, or at least the industry side of it? Um, and it... I really think that it was a, a time of change in surfing when, when, I, when I moved away from it. I, I felt that we'd said as much as we could 
within the confines of what was happening in society at that time. And it, surfing began to change uh, through the influx of uh, the commercialization of the industry. It became a, a really competitive vehicle and a vehicle to, to shift um, consumption forward at a great rate. Mm. And they were things that I just never subscribed to in any way. I mean, I just thought competition was, was um, you know, when it reared its head, I was not there. I just felt didn't bring the best out in people. Mm. I didn't like the, the, you know, us or them, me or you, you're a winner, I'm a loser. Mm. I mean, the whole thing was divisive and elitism. And I think it started to express itself and show itself through surfing and the competition. And I just, you know, I just said, thank you and walked away. I never walked away from surfing. I walked away from the, that aspect that I'd been involved in because I could see it was like a tsunami that was coming down the path mm -hmm. and it was going to take over, which it did. Mm. And the whole surfing industry changed with the big corporations and the branding and this and that and everything else. And to me, that was the bastardization of surfing and I just didn't want to be part of it mm. or near it. So I, I kept surfing, I, uh, but I just moved into a different world. Mm. And do you think it's kind of poisoned the minds of the surfing public, that movement, that corporatization of surfing? Do you think it's changed the, changed the culture? Well, it did. Mm. It certainly did at the time. But it goes full circle when you look at it now. It's, it's history. So, you know, it came and went and it left a mark. You know, whether that's good or bad, that's, you know, for the individual. For me, I just sort of disassociated myself with it. But I, I think that, you know, we grow through things. You know, you, you eventually, even with COVID, you know, you look at it and whether or not it is a virus and whether or not it's this or that or whatever you want to make of it, it's going to initiate um, a, a change in people's consciousness. And I believe that that's way beyond human um, consciousness. I think there's an element there that shifts things and that they appear to be a certain thing, but they're not as they appear to be. And, and, and in a bit of time, good will come from it because people will probably come to the realisation that, you know, they've got to actually start to prioritise their life and what's important for them. And, uh, and when you get forced to be put in your own home as a prison and reflect on it deeply, you go, hey, wait a minute. And uh, the change that comes as a result of that, I think, is going to be positive. Mm. Well, there's been a something of a positive change for you in that period. You've got a, a, a new, a new old, <laughs> a new old film project on the go. Can you tell us a bit about that? Morning of the Earth. <laughs> you, yeah. you stumbled across some. Uh, what's the story there? So you've remastered Morning of the Earth, but you also stumbled across some lost tapes from that period. Yeah, that's right. And I, I watched that, a couple it? of them, mate. And they, <laughs> it's like the older it gets the more beautiful it gets somehow. I guess the remasterings, uh, they got, whoever's done that's done, a, done an incredible job. Yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, how that project came about. Well, work, working from the backwards to the forwards, you know, last year we got a call from a guy called um, Adam Eden. And his father was Jack Eden. And he left a message on my phone. He said, oh, I've got something here that might be of interest to you. And I went, oh, okay, who's it? Adam Eden, who's he? I've never spoken to him before. So I phoned him back and he said, uh, you know, you know, might remember my father, Jack Eden, who was a photographer. And he did that. And I went, yeah, I remember Jack. And he was a great photographer, you know, really, really, you know, into the you know, preservation of the beauty and very concerned at the time with the technicality of it to make sure everything was precise and right. 
And um, anyhow, apparently, um, I think it might have been someone, I don't know how he got hold of them, but they came across into his hands. They were on their way to the tip, a whole lot of 16mm film, huh. which was not only some of my film, but it was film of like lifesavers and you know early Australian beach activities and things like that. So it was a whole range of film. And he said, oh, I've got three cans here of, with Morning of the Earth written on them. Wow. And I went, you're kidding, aren't you? Because, I, I, you know, about five years ago, I sort of, I knew they were out there. There was some footage of, I thought, where is it? You know, it's out there somewhere. And I made a few calls and looked, but I never found it. Anyhow, I gave up and let it go. And it turned out that his father had found it, put it in, um, uh, in the garage or a storage place, and then just, you know, wanted to preserve it because he thought it belongs to somebody and I'm not going to see this destroyed. Mm. And he died two years ago. And uh, it took Adam a year or so to go through his estate. And in the process, he found this film and then he phoned me up and I went, okay, that's pretty good. Where do I get my breath? And he sent it over to Justin and made a, a file of it for me to look at. And then Justin looked at it and it was right when he was coming down the final state of the restoration of three years' work in the restoration of the original Morning of the Earth from the camera takes the film, the master film. He restored every bit of it to its original colour and grade and everything. It's, it's incredible. And so when I looked at it, um, I thought, wow, there was 90 minutes of film. It had bits and pieces of barley and bits and pieces. But it was really funky. It had scratches in it and it was broken here and joined up and it was kind of a bit out of focus there because I had the wrong lens on. And we gave it to a, a really switched on young guy over in California. It was really cruisy and Linda Films and making a few boards here and there. And like he was really slow when you talked to him. It was so <laughs> cool. I loved it. And he, he cut the film. He cut a 30-minute film and we talked to each other on the phone and briefed, you know, briefed him a bit and talked about it. And I said, oh, just kind of leave it in its raw state, you know, but make sure, you know, there's a space in it. The thing that I love about films is space, you know. Surfing is space. And in the films, put some space in there. I think open it up. And he cut it. And to me, oh, and... um. The music was done by Andrew Wesson from Group Love. Oh, okay. Right? And when he was here with Akasha, I met him. Mm. And I really hooked up with him. It was a... Spirit of Akasha Kidman's uh, yeah. kind of follow-up to Morning of the Earth. That's right. Mm. And and Andrew came out from America with Group Love, and it was fantastic. And I met with him, and of all the musicians, I just kind of hooked up with him, and there was a real connection. And I always thought, if we get Morning of the Earth out, it'd be great if Andrew would come along and play some tunes to it. It was just in the back of my mind. Anyhow, I formed my partnership in that time and 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 with Justin, it was like a godsend. Um, and um, it turns out that part of his friend or a group of his friends that he surfed with is a guy called Matt. And he's one of his best mates and he surfed with him. And he was a curator in, in an art gallery over in Los Angeles. Then COVID hit and he got his walking orders. So he's like hanging out, 17 years as a curator in a, in a leading art gallery. And it turns out, would you believe, that Matt was Andrew's brother. Hmm. 
Wow. How's that for a small world? Yeah. So Matt said, well, why don't we get Andrew to do some music for the Outtakes film? Unbelievable. And I went, that sounds good. Yeah. So Andrew and his band <laughs> and so another cosmic. band um, in six weeks did 38 tracks of music. Wow. And sent it to me and I got five tracks out of it and, and we I sent them then to the editor and he synced it up and the music I think is incredible. And the film is like, it's so great because we didn't, we didn't try and clean it up. Yeah. We just left it as raw footage with scratches here and everything. Because in today's world with digital, everything is so perfect and so razor sharp and so homogenized and so clean. And I really like, I mean, many things about film, but I really like softness. I mm. like I, I don't like th films to be too edgy. Mm, I mean, a lot heart, of people like warmth. yeah. I, I want the warmth and the heart to come through, and the film has got this incredible charm to it in today's world because most of the films you see on YouTube or people are doing surfing films now they're like so perfect, you know, <laughs> and and that's great, but the outtakes, the remote outtakes, is like a a home movie. It's got heart and it's got a beautiful soundtrack. And I love the fact that it's a bit out of focus here, it's a bit shifty there, and it's got scratches and blobs. And I just said to uh, Justin, my partner, I said, fucking great, mate. I mean, <laughs> it is uh... great. Just leave it exactly like that. Don't change it. It's so perfect. And it's completely the opposite to Morning of the Earth, which is really polished and beautiful. And then it's got the remote outtakes, which is the raw footage. And I'd forgotten that I'd even shot a lot of that stuff. And the raw footage is like, you know, what you see is what you got. And that, what I got back there was that. And I did, you know, I just went, that's too good. So that's the 33-minute a, a film that goes alongside of it. And that was a gift because it came in the last, you know, the last um, um, few months of making the film. Oh, incredible, man. So how great can we... Great story, yeah. It's a great story. Mm. And how can we see that? Um, I can get, I can send you a file now for you, just for you. It's they're finished. They only finished. You know, Matt and and Justin did a 250-page book. Right. right. Okay. And I saw it along the way, but basically I just kind of inputted it and let them run with it. Yeah. Because I just thought it would be really cool. See what happens. So there was a bit of a song and dance with the printing company, but we got it done. And. Uh, it's arrived. This is the first copy. Wow. So you've, uh, Albie's just gone and grabbed the first copy. Uh, yeah, I, it was delivered to me two days ago and I haven't opened it yet. It's like a, a box of chocolates. It's really nice. Wow. It's, so it's, it's a, a Italian chocolates. Wow. <laughs> so it's a 250 page retrospective uh, yeah. of Morning of the Earth. But it's f from images that haven't been seen before. Wow. Because a lot of them uh, were, because we tra transferred the film to 4K. Even though we didn't restore the, 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 the defects like the colorized or gradation in the outtakes, we left it, it's still 4K resolution, mm. right? Mm. So it's 4K resolution with all the grit on it. Wow, right? how good is that going to look? So that will look uh, fantastic. infinitely better than even the original version. Well, yeah, but the original version now is like, it's, it's, it's incredible. And the thing is, the music <laughs> connections... Justin's friend did uh, is a sound musician, uh, engineer, and he worked on Tarantino's last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. Right? And he's a surfer, surfer friend wow. of Justin's. 
And when he found out that Justin was working on Morning of the Earth and restoring it, he said, can I work on the sound? So we gave him the master sound tapes. And after, and then he went and worked on the sound. So we've, it's the same sound, but it's kind of a bit polished. and kind Tarantino's of, sound engineers worked <laughs> on your film? Are you <laughs> kidding that? me? Wow. How's that? That is just like too good. That's too good. Isn't man. that amazing how Matt... Wesson was Andrew's brother and is the art director. He art directed this. Yeah. And then um, the gentleman that uh, did the sound was uh, Justin's good friend and he worked with Tarantino on his last film. Mate, it's incredible. And I guess it just goes to show how many people Morning of the Earth has touched. I mean, from... Who would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought? It's reverberated in ways yeah. like a like a rock dropped into a, a pond. You know, it's it's created this uh, these shock waves that have just touched the lives of fucking who knows amazing. how many people. You know, when we were up in Tibet, we went to this. We went to this. Um, it took us two weeks to get over the, to to the holy mountain, the sacred mountain over there, um, Mount Kailash. We knew there was mm. a festival there, right? So we went over there, but. Down, not far from Kalos, is one of the highest freshwater lakes in the world, mm. Manasarova. And that's, when you're at Manasarova, you can see Kailash just over here from the top of the mountains. And, and Mount Kailash is, uh, you know, this is the centre point of several religions in the oh, world. Totally. It's, a, it's a holy structure for yeah. what the Hindus, uh, Buddhist, Buddhist yeah. Jain, that's right. Bon, like And it's also, on a physical level, it's also considered to be the crown chakra of the planet. Yeah, Wow. Because most mountains have got it's steep, but Kailash is like a cone, mm. right? And when you look at the the Buddhas, all the symbols of the Buddha, they're always got this cone on the head, mm. you know. And it's kind of like so underneath it, it's kind of recognised in, in religions as well as being the crown chakra of the planet. So anyhow, we go to Manasarova, which is amazing. And there's a temple there, and the water is like crystal. And it's one of the, the lakes that the tributaries run down and feed India. Because there's a few lakes up there, but it all runs down through the Himalayas and then into India and supplies India with its water supply. Anyhow, when we're up there, we got, it's supposed to be like really, you know, because of its closeness and its vicinity and the belief system and so forth, it's like a, a sacred holy lake, all right, uh, with all that it implies. So when I came back, I had a bottle. I brought a bottle of the water back, right? and so did my friend who was with me up in in Tibet. And, and, I, and just, I have so just quickly, you also brought back some uh, some seeds, right, from the the original Bodhi tree. Yeah, yeah. There's five the, trees in this property. <laughs> There's five trees, five Bodhi trees and on this property. The Bodhi tree is uh, the tree under which Buddha gained enlightenment, right? Like well, well, he got sick and tired of running around everywhere looking for it. He decided to sit down and have a sleep under a tree. Yeah. And when he woke up, he woke up. And he went. <laughs> Oh, that's just what it's about. So we actually so, got you know five seeds from that quietly. The girl woman smuggled them in, and they she she got she grew small plants, and how they're now uh, two three meters tall, and they're positioned around the property. Here <laughs> in the mid north coast of New South out. Wales, that's pretty far out, that's man. That's right out. up there. That's my <laughs> favourite story. Whenever I talk about coming to this joint, I always tell that story. That's far out. I mean, just the fact that you you get. You get the seed, and then you've got the seed. It goes into a small plant. Then someone gives you the small plant, and you put it in your ground. And now they're just around here, everywhere, you're surrounded by them. It's 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 full on, man. It's well, wild. the water and there. Yeah, back to the water is is Manasarova. And David Thomas, who was went to Tibet with me, who does a lot of sacred geometry and 
checking checks out um, you know grid systems around the world for people that are going to build properties like hmm. big properties he'll go in there and check the ley lines and things like that to make sure that they don't fuck up you know when they're deciding they're going to design their house and put it here or the hotel or whatever they're doing mm. whatever structure it is and um anyhow he said that if you take a drop of that water and drop it into the Thames river in london it will completely change the energy of that river one drop wow isn't that amazing just the concept of that mm. and that's what i think you know like when you when you think about morning of the earth it's only a drop in the ocean but it's one drop and you never know how that drop's going to change or contribute to the change in the ocean so if you can take a drop from Manasarova and put it in the times going through london mm. and it can change the whole energy field of that that river then the people will indirectly benefit from it without even realizing it but that's the power you know, I mean, when you think of an, an atom, for example, you can't even see it, but the strength mm. of the atom and the beauty of an atom and the, and the, the, the infinity of an atom, and then you start looking at the power of a drop of water, mm. um, you know, you have to go, well, there's more to life than meets the eye. Mate, couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think that's where we'll leave it. I can also think of one other droplet of liquid that will seriously change your energy and perception of things, but uh, maybe that's a topic for a, yeah. another podcast. Albie, it's been yeah, well, an absolute pleasure, mate. Yeah, you too. I'm really stoked to be able to share that because like, I've had a gifted life and I'm so grateful. You know, that's, all, that's the most important thing. Someone said to me the other day, if you go through life and you're not grateful, then you've wasted your life. So, you know, I'm totally grateful for everything that's happened. So, thank you. Thank you, man. Legendary. <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. You're kidding me, right? Are you kidding me? This guy, are you kidding me? 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 Kidding me? Kidding me? Kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. 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 Oh, you've got to be kidding me. 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 you got to be kidding me, right? you got to be kidding me. What? you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me! You gotta be kidding me! You gotta be kidding me! Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Come on! You gotta be kidding me! You gotta be kidding me! You gotta be kidding me! Are you kidding me? You kidding me? You kidding me, right? Are you kidding me? You kidding me? You kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Are 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 you fucking kidding me? You've got to be fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me?